Hello there and welcome to episode 93 of the Value Through Vulnerability podcast. I'm your host Gary Turner. I've got an absolute treat for you today in that I'm bringing back for the first time to this podcast someone for a second time and that is David Marquet. So he joined me back on episode number seven of the podcast many many moons ago where we spoke about his intent-based leadership but he has a new book out today and that's the one we're talking about which is Leadership is Language. As this podcast goes live um, imminently within 24 or 72 hours the book will be released and I really hope that you'll join us for a really really enthralling conversation. Um, A couple of the things that I took away that really resonated with me so deeply was that he spoke about the fact that he had a realization that all of my leadership training was about telling people what to do, telling them nicely, telling them precisely, telling them so they thought it was their idea, but fundamentally about telling people what to do. Like there's multi-billions of dollars, pounds, whichever currency you use spent on leadership development, how much of it is truly moving the dial towards more human-centered collaborative working. It's starting to come through now, but I think it's still very much stuck in those command and control days. I'd love to know what your uh, what your thoughts are. Um, some of the other intros as well I wanted to share with you was, and I think this is so powerful from David, it's good people trying to do the right thing, but with the wrong playbook of the industrial era. So I just want you to think about that for yourself personally, at home, at work, in society at large, but also in the workplace. You know, people are not, I genuinely believe that people are not inherently bad. People learn how to be bad or unethical or whatever other negative stereotype we want to add to it. But fundamentally, people are inherently good. I truly believe that. Um, so what is it within a system or within their own thinking that leads them down the wrong path at times? I wonder what you think about that. Also, this is super powerful. I just want to leave you with this before you get into the full conversation. Now the appropriate organisational competence is the ability to improve, not the ability to lock a process in and run it forever. This speaks so powerfully to the agility, to the, um, you talk about the the VUCA world, so we've got this volatile, uncertain world. But I think it's exciting, you know, in order for us to thrive in this fast-paced world, this ever-changing world, of course we are change every single second of every day. You know, to not be locking process in and to develop um, the competence of continuous improvement through people and not just through process. It's so, so exciting and it really speaks a lot of my work over the last four years as well. I've done with my own workplace and outside where we have absolutely role modelled this um, competence of the ability to improve. So not waiting for a problem to be solved, which is the language, but actually how can we be better? being deliberately developmental to use the language of the likes of uh, Next Jump and others. So enjoy the conversation. I'd love to know what you take away and uh, speak to you soon. Welcome to Value Through Vulnerability. This is a podcast dedicated to putting the human back into humanity. And today I'm very grateful to bring a very inspiring human to you in the form of David Marquet. David has the illustrious um, honour of being the first person (laughs) to return to the Value Through Vulnerability podcast for a second time. So welcome to the podcast, David. Oh, thank you, Gary. And uh, I didn't know I had that honour, but uh, thanks for having me back on the show. 
Not at all. Well, thanks for joining us. And you know, I'm really excited to have you here as within the next couple of weeks, your new book, Leadership as Language, is coming out. And I'd really love to explore that a bit more with you today, David, if we can. Yeah, sure, sure. I'm super excited. It comes out February 6th in the UK or came out. Fantastic. <laughs> I don't know what to do with that. <laughs> so, it's out February 6th. <laughs> So for, for those that may not have heard us talk before, um, I think it would be great if you can just give you know, a couple of minute introduction and also you know, speak back to your previous work around Turn the Ship Around as well, David, and maybe how that's informed this new book, if you wouldn't mind sharing. Sure, sure. So uh, my story is uh, I grew up in the Navy. I was a submariner, highly co command and control environment. I was selected to be the captain of one submarine. And after 12 months of preparing for that ship, I was shifted to a different ship. The reason I was shifted was because the captain on that submarine quit abruptly a year early and his ship was not doing well. They had the worst morale and the worst performance in the fleet. Uh, the, the wrinkle was that it was a different kind of submarine. So the, the specific details that I had spent 12 months learning were all irrelevant. And I show up with this weird sort of uh, cognitive dissonance where I know I don't know the details on the ship, but I'm fulfilling, I'm conforming to the role of submarine command. And the crew is complying with, with what I'm telling them to do. And it didn't work. The very first day we went to sea, I gave an order or actually suggested an order, which couldn't be done. It was a trivial thing. It was basically shifting into second gear for a motor that only had first gear no second gear. And the officer ordered it. This was the shocking thing about it, not that I'd made a mistake. And the crew member kind of shrugs and looks over his shoulder like, you guys are idiots and what's going on? And of course it came to light. And it, this really rocked me back on my heels. And I got my officers together and I said, uh, and I, because the realization I had was all my leadership training was about telling people what to do telling them nicely, telling them precisely, telling them so they thought it was their idea, but it, it fundamentally about telling people what to do. And in this environment, I needed them to tell me what they thought. The problem wasn't I'd given a bad order. The problem was I was the one giving orders. So we went through this experiment basically where we tried to reverse the whole thing. And instead of focusing downward and managing downward, and me directing and then reporting, everyone lean, was leaning upward, but they would tell me, here's what I intend to do. And you, know, you stop me if you want to, ask questions. I invite feedback, but absent a veto, the bias is for action. And this was unbelievably transformative. And it really happened in the, with the most simplest, simplest of tools, which was the language that we used. And every day, all I did was think about, well, why did that person say it that way? And could we say it slightly different? And what can I say so that it makes it easier for them to, to share what they think, to take in it, all those kind of things. And it kept going back to me. So there was this deliberate focus on language. And the story is amazing things happen. And we, the, the submarine went from worst to first in retention and performance. But over the next 10 years, we had 10 officers become submarine commanders. And so I wrote that story and turned the ship around. And to kind of make this long uh, monologue go longer, uh, so, so we started working with other companies 
but we, and, and we kind of came up with this sort of don't say this, don't, don't say that, say this kind of a, uh, a list, but you couldn't really remember it. And so this new book is an attempt to put some structure behind what's the structure behind the new language that we, we want to embrace at work and what are we walking away from? Thank you for sharing that. And I, I, I love in your book quite early on in the new book, which you kindly shared with me, one of the things that really struck me was the intentionality, that's your word intent, around moving from more reactive language to more proactive language. And I'd love for you to speak a little bit about that for our listeners who are kind enough to join us, David. How did that sort of realization come about for you? Well, on the, on the submarine, uh, for, for, first of all, I had to get away from this idea that I was controlling other people's behavior. And we live in a world where we think that the way to have success in our job is to get our get team, other people to do stuff. And I think there's a real limitation here, which is they're only going to be as good as you. And they're only going to be as proactive as you. And they're not going to give that discretionary effort. People who are told what to do will do just the minimum. And then we'll set a standard. You need to shovel 400 pounds of coal a day. You need to write 500 words a, a day. And once you reach 501 words, there's no benefit of do, doing more. If you do more, then, then the reward is next week, your, your quote is 600 words. <laughs> so it doesn't give all the best, the best way to organize humans to achieve greatness is to create a structure where each person on the team is internally motivated and they are striving for greatness, not avoiding errors. In other words, it's not play to lose, it's play to win. And it's got to come from within. But the job of the leader here is to create the structure, the language, and the direction. But the how we get there has got to come from the team. Otherwise, you end up running around in this sort of, I'm going to manage people mode, which is just a giant waste of time. Just, just imagine if you could, you needed to spend zero time managing people. You court, you need to coordinate people. People, their efforts should be coordinated. But what if you didn't have to manage anyone? They just manage themselves, and all you need to do is manage yourself. <laughs> it's enough of a challenge. So there's this whole set of language which I think the problem is we've been inherited from the industrial revolution. And even though there's this logical cognitive level that says, yeah, we are not like that anymore, the language persists. We have all hands meetings. We uh, refer to light. We say that's, you know, team is working like clockwork. And that's a good thing because that's an obeying the clock is the industrial age playbook. And we, we hear can do, oh, it's a can do organization. And again, we think that's a good thing. And then when someone says, well, we're a can think organization, that kind of struck, strikes your ear as sounding you know, off and weird and tinny. And it's like, well, why is that? Isn't having a can think organization more important or equally important to having a can do? And so I think it's this change from the words that sound normal to us are industrial age language words. And what we need is to start using some abnormal sounding words, which are post, they're designed for this era when we want people to think as well as do 
and motivate from within as well as extrinsic. It's, it's so powerful how you just, because what I'm sensing, and I certainly read it in the book, David, is just literally reframing or changing the sequence or the words that you use can have a transformative impact on how people hear and therefore perform. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, here's a really simple example. We, we like to ask questions like, will it work? Should we launch the product? Should we, hey, should we, should we install 737 Mac software on all Boeing airplanes? And this forces people into this binary yes, no question, which artificially eliminates complexity. So it's very cognitively convenient. There's a cognitive convenience to it. And it's, it's just really laziness, which is what your program, brain is programmed to do. So what you want is to ask the question, uh, the trick is to start the question with the word how. How likely is it? How sure are you? How confident? How enthusiastic? And now, these are for questions dealing with the future and decision making. So now what you get is a nuanced response because if someone is 51% convinced that we should launch the product on time, that's a way different situation than if they're 99% convinced. And with the team, when you get that kind of a, now, now what you're doing is getting a distribution of how people feel. And you're embracing, with the word we use is we embrace variability. The, 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 the industrial revolution was about reducing variability. Manufacturing is a reduced variability sport. Variability in manufacturing is an error. So the whole organization was tuned, designed, and meetings were run to reduce variability. You want to run a meeting? Have you heard, ever heard this in a meeting? Uh, let's build consensus. What is that? That is reducing variability of thinking and squeezing out the outliers. Well, all the innovation happens on the outliers. So we have a meeting that we say, oh yeah, I want to get everyone on board. We're going to, re we're going to build consensus. And then I'm confused and scratch my head as to why there's a, a paucity of creativity and innovation. It's because your organization is designed to suppress all outlying opinions which is where the, all the innovation and creativity happens. So uh, the phrase is, don't bring a reduced variability playbook to an embrace variability game for, for manufacturing on the assembly line. Safety regulations, things like that, those are still reduced var variability games. We want compliance. But for thinking, which is be, how do we improve the assembly line? Or the, hey, there's a problem on the assembly line. Or how do we improve our safety compliance beyond, or, or our safety record beyond mere compliance by getting people to think? Now we want to flip it. We want to embrace variability, which requires a different language. So it's a different playbook. And that's how I think about it. This is a new playbook for leaders. It's so intriguing for me, this, David, because, as you know, the, the title of this podcast is Value Through Vulnerability. And whilst, as we spoke before, the before we started, you know, you're not mandating, I like to speak about this, you're not mandating decision-making by emotion. But you know, I think yeah. maybe you can speak to it a bit more around where emotion fits into decision-making, if you will. Yeah, so I, I think this idea of vulnerability is super, 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 super important. And, and it's new. And the reason it's new is because... Now, we want the doers to be the deciders. In the industrial age, we divided the organization into two castes of, of people, deciders, leaders, managers, white collar, and then 
blue collar workers and doers. So the deciders got the doers to do something. And then the deciders would review how the doers were doing and, and evaluate them and then decide what the doers needed to do better. We didn't need the doers to get involved in decision making. In fact, we didn't want them to generally. And we didn't need the doers to reflect on their own work and try to make it better. None of this matters until now where the new paradigm is the doers should also be the, the deciders. When it comes to, if you want all marginal effort, if you want high performing teams, the people doing the work have to make decisions about the work. And now that's gonna require a couple things. Number one, decisions always pass through an emotional filter before they're done. No matter how logical you want it to be, you buy, you're going to buy a house, square foot, whatever, whatever, whatever. At the end, it's like, yeah, I can see my family there or not. It's always a fine, the final go, no go, your emotions get to vote. And then the second thing is, we are gonna want the doers to reflect back on their own work which we didn't need to before. Like we, uh, we were the judges of the doers. And we now, we now know that's, that's not really the best for the bulk of the organization when they relegate them to doing. So that means we have to, so the, what, we, what I say is we gotta tame the be good self. You got two competing selves. The be good self, which wants to prove competence in the world. Hey, everyone tried their best. We, had, we did it the best we could with the tools we had. Yeah, everyone, it, I know, it, blah, 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 no one cares. And then the get better self, which, which lets go of all that and says, hey, how could we do better last time? But confident in the fact that I'm not being judged. And even if I can admit that I could have done better or the team could have done better, I'm not going to get fired. And there's basic trust that we're working to get better because now the appropriate uh, organizational competence is the ability to improve, not the ability to lock a process in and run it forever. When Henry Ford started building Model T's in 1908, he built the same model for 15 years. Of course, by now we're in the 1920s, the Roaring Twenties in America, where wealth has expanded, tastes have changed, and the cars of this old, uh, stale uh, model. Ford, Ford made more cars than the rest of the automobile industry combined at one point. But they had to retool, shut the whole plant down because they got so far behind. And uh, GM caught up and then they, they were back in a rat race with GM for the next, till even now. So would you mind speaking a bit more about that vulnerability piece actually, that filter? Because I think what's interesting for me is I hear you talk, David, and I'd like you to step into actually another example, real life example of El Faro, yeah. um, which I think brings this to life a little bit as to where there is a lack of vulnerability or a lack of people feeling safe to speak up can cause catastrophe. Such a sad story. So the El Faro was a huge container ship, uh, over 700 meters long, and she set sail in 2015 from Florida to go to Puerto Rico, sailed into a hurricane and sank. 33 people lost their lives. The black box on the ship was recovered. So we have a 500 page, 25 hour transcript of what transpired. And there, there's a critical point 
where one watch officer and then a couple hours later, a second watch officer call the captain and try and convince the captain that they need to make this detour, which will snake them through the Bahamas and put them on the on this protected side of the Bahamas, away from the storm. And when you it, the, the language is is it's halting, it's deferential, it's full of ums and well um well I think uh, well I, I mean it could be more specific. I mean they're talking about a hurricane which is as big as whales basically, and it, 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 you don't need to be that specific. We're sailing into a hurricane, and when they're talking amongst themselves, you you their joke about wearing their inflatable suits and whether they've got the, the flashing light that will work on. And, and then you say, well, are these just sort of weak-willed people sailing um, lemming-like to their death? And you dig deeper and what you see is if you look eight, 12, 16 hours earlier and the captain says things like, uh, someone says, hey, are we going into the storm? And the captain's like, wouldn't have it any other way. And uh, he never refers to the hurricane as a hurricane. He refers to it as a tropical storm, a low pressure, a weather system. And he, he basically, and at one point, after the, the quote, he makes the decision to, to go along the Atlantic or the exposed side of the Bahamas. He says, uh, he mocks mariners who would take the protected route. Well, you can't deviate from any storm. Oh my God, oh my God. And he kind of says it in a frantic voice like that. And that comes full circle. That has the intended effect of coercing his people into complying with what they're supposed to do. Don't ask questions. And that lack of vulnerability, I mean, he could have said, hey, this is looking sketchy. I, I really need to know what everyone thinks. He could have said, yeah, I made the decision to go this way, but it turns out it might be a wrong decision. He could have said a number of things, which would have made it easier for the crew to tell him, we are going to die. The ship is not ready. The ship can't take it, but he doesn't. And when I read through it, it's too, it's too easy and it's a wrong assessment to say, well, this captain is particularly uh, Captain Queeg-like. He's a particularly dictatorial, particularly authoritarian. He's just like every other captain I've ever seen. And it's good people trying to do the right thing, but with the wrong playbook, with the industrial age playbook. And what they needed was a different kind a playbook. And in terms of your, you know, it's such a tragic story, as you say, not even so long ago, you know, it's only a few years old, that story. Um, what's your recommendation to anyone that's listening to us right now, whether they're individuals, whether they're leading a team, you know, leading organizations, what's sort of, what's from your work, your research, you know, you bringing this book to the world, David, what's your hopes for those that are listening to us and reading your book? So, so the, the general thing is use language which, which embraces variability. And the book's got 300 pages on phrases that you can use that make that, it easier for you. The whole sequence for the industrial age play was we obey the clock, which gives us a sense of time pressure. 
And then leaders coerce the doers into doing what they decide. Then the doers, their job is to comply. Then we continue the run as long as possible. Our mindset is proving and we conform to hierarchy versus what we want to do now is control the clock. You can't engage in your thinking brain until we say, all right, time out. Let's, let's, let's think about, are we really doing the right thing? Not, are we doing it right? And then we collaborate truly. And there's so many, I've seen so many, uh, so many coercion plays where we actually label, we think it's collaboration. The leader says, hey, so I think we should keep going on down the Atlantic side. What do you guys think? That's coercion. That's not collaboration. But then the leader later says, oh, I asked everyone. They all had a chance to vote. No. What you want to say is, what do you guys think before I contaminate you with what I think? Because once you know what I think, it's going to be make it harder for you to say no. And the other thing is, even phrasing the question that way, it, 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 it presents the decision as the default is to continue. Again, this goes back to continue. Continue down the Atlantic rate versus we got to make a decision to exit versus it's a 50-50. Should we take the side path? Should we, should we go channel A or channel B? And it's, and it's very equally worded. So each one has, each option stands on its own. One thing that was really interesting was we just, we did a word count analysis. And so we looked at times when three people were on the bridge, the captain, the ship's officer, and the crew member. And there was an interesting pattern. Every time the, those three people were on the bridge, the word count analysis exactly paralleled the salary count analysis. <laughs> In other words, the captain, who was the highest paid, said the most words. The officer, who was next highest paid, said the next most words. And then the crew member, who was significantly lower paid, said the fewest words, and by a long shot. The, mo uh, the most any one of the crew members said on any of the three teams was 5% of the words. So that's the most. So the other two people said 95 or more percent of the words. Now think about it. And then we asked the crew member, well, what do you think? How's the ship steering? I mean, that guy's got intimate knowledge about how the ship is performing in the storm because if the waves get worse, they knock the ship side to side and it becomes harder to maintain course. And he's like, oh, how's the ship steering? Uh, it's fine. Well, and then we say later, oh, well, you know, I, I really wish I knew how, how, how tough it had been because I would have, yeah, but you didn't create a structure where actually I was part of the conversation for 95% of the time. So you think it's going to all of a sudden change? No. And these patterns are really interesting. So if you're in a meeting, I want you to be sensitive to this. We call it the, we call it the team language coefficient, which is how, how skewed or how even is the word count? If you sense, well, there's a couple of people that really haven't said much. Your job is to get them into the conversation. You're missing out on what they think and what they see. Don't assume, oh, they must think like everyone else. That's actually probably the opposite. They actually probably are the ones who think differently. That's why they're being quiet. And then number two, if you sense someone else or more typically you are saying too much, suppress it. And let's go back to the question. If you ask, uh, hey, should we launch the product? That's a certain number of words. And the response is going to be one word, yes, no. So there's going to be a skew in the language. But if you say, should, how confident are you that we should launch the product? 
you've automatic just by the way you've asked the question, you've got a more even word count because the response is going to be, well, I you know I'm pretty confident, I'm 51% confident, and here's why. Now they're saying nearly as many or more words than you are. So this this one idea of word count and how it's spread across the team really captures a lot of team dynamics. And, it, and, and what I love about it, 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 I don't care what kind of words, I don't care what words, I don't care what language the words are in. <laughs> this works in all cultures. We've tried it in different languages and, and, and basically and the results are the same. It's, it's just the number of words. That's all you need to think about. What's so powerful, it's, this is, it's, it's incredible. I'll tell you what's incredible for me, David, is a, where do, you, where do you think about analyzing that? That shows where your mind is. Um, but the other thing <laughs> is, have you heard that there's, um, there's um, a model called the iceberg of ignorance? And I can't remember who actually done the work, but it maps identically with your research, which is that senior leaders or those at the top of an organization only ever hear 4% of the truth of what's going on within the organization. And it maps brilliantly yeah. with your, your um, share of voice work, which is fascinating. Yeah, and I mentioned the 737 before, and now we have the CEO, well, the board, the board, which isn't an independent organization, but the board basically gave the CEO a pass on his thing. But they said, oh, by the way, we're going to change reporting so that the, the engineers are closer. There's only one person between the chief head engineers and the CEO versus two. In other words, what they're saying is, which kind of gets to exactly what you're saying, but, but, but the, and the CEO is totally without blame and there is no pressure to conform. But what they're also saying is if you flip it, it says, well, the, the CEO wasn't paying enough attention to engineering because if he had been, he would have been asking questions to the senior vice presidents about engineering questions. But as the CEO spends all day asking profitability and product delivery questions and never how or the, the 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 cognitively heavy lifting of the engineering then that's what they're going to ask their people and their people are going to ask their other people and it's just, that cascades down so somehow we're going to solve that so so in other words what the, what the recommendation should have been the ceo did not pay sufficient attention to engineering and is culpable but we don't say that because the board of directors they're, they're all buds and whatever but yeah, but this is exactly the thing is it's on you to ask the questions and create a structure that makes it easy for those signals to be sent to you. We, I've seen it in the military where we'll make a decision. And uh, I was in the Pent Pentagon when the uh, uh, invasion of Iraq happened. And so I was sat in some lower level meetings about whether we should and what to do. And we saw the same thing. It was like 51, 49% tough, complex discussions were collapsed into a simplistic recommend invade. And all the understanding of what the assumptions were behind it were, were washed out. And then the system, the organization was not interested in disconfirming information. So when Troops drove through the first, out in the Joff, the first town 
in southern Iraq and the, and the populace is shooting at them, the, the assumption that the population will welcome the coalition with open arms was a busted assumption. But the system was not, it was not designed to, uh, well, the system was designed to suppress this confirming information, just to be blunt about it. We didn't want to hear that. And so it took a long time for that to, to result in the kind of conversations that it needed to. So that was, that was tragic. So I've seen from the inside, but, but to say, oh, this is a military problem or it's just an American problem, I think is highly simplistic. I've seen it all, uh, all over the world and, and um, in corporations. It's what I really love about the work you've done in this book, David, is a the real life stories again, as tragic as they are, but it really brings to life the parallels. You know, I've experienced my own work organization throughout my network. The prevailing paradigm is still, you know, you have a permission to speak up as long as it's the right things you're speaking about. You know, that is still by far the prevailing message. And I think hopefully people listening to us will challenge themselves because I think we've all got and I like to speak about this David I think there's a joint accountability now with the world we live in so it is about the individual but it's also about how do we make more of a collective move forward towards uh, towards how we collaborate genuinely exactly and so in, in, in the best healthy organizations here's what happens the individual says to themselves I'm gonna be the best I can be given whatever the culture and the environment is I'm gonna if I see something, I'll say something. If I have an idea, I will share it, even if I'm not sure. And I'm gonna give them my all, and I'm gonna trust that the people running the place have my best intentions in mind. And the, and the leader, but, but at the same time, the leader say, you know what, if my people don't, aren't exhibiting the behaviors I want, that's on me because they're delivering the behaviors that the culture that I'm the caretaker of has been tuned to deliver. And so if I want different behaviors, my job is not to yell at them or exhort them or coerce them. It's to fix the culture, fix the environment, fix the system, fix the structure. So in other words, if I say, well, my people aren't telling, giving me, sharing their ideas with me. Yeah, it's because you're running a meeting in a way that reduces variability and makes it hard for the outliers to speak up. So the job is you have to ask the question different. Don't say after, oh, well, you guys were all there. You had a chance to speak up. No, that's just blaming them. So in other words, the, leader takes, the leaders take responsibility for their role and the people take responsibility for their role. In bad performing cultures, we have the opposite. People say, well, I, I can't do my job because the, these guys are all screwed up and it's just a, it's a toxic culture. And then the leaders say, well, we can't give you guys any authority or trust you because you're, you're all screwed up and, and we are gonna, every time there's a problem, it's a one-off, we blame you kind of thing. And so you get this, this thing versus the, the healthy culture where people look to themselves and say, what can I do better? When I go to, uh, give, when I do keynotes, it's very interesting, and I get a sense of the culture of the organization. There's a big, big multi, top uh, 100 global company, and they were running a, uh, uh, an app where people could up and down vote um, questions. And so the questions that got upvoted the most were questions that sounded like, uh, how do you deal with uh, leaders who are idiots? I mean, it wasn't quite that bad, but you know, how do you deal with leaders who like to micromanage? 
how do you deal with a culture that's arthritic and staid? How do you deal with, in other words, they're all outward facing questions. They're all questions about, it's not my problem. I, I can only do so much with these clowns around me, as opposed to how can I change my language or how can I change my behavior? When I get questions like that, now I know this culture is strong because leaders say, well, what, how, what do I do? What can I do? How can I change the, you know, what ideas do you have for running the weekly ops meeting different? And then the people participating say, well, what can I do with my team? And, and now it becomes, we're coupling outcome with responsibility, with personal ownership, and then you're gonna have a win-win. Oh, sounds pretty simple, David. If we just slow down a little bit. Um, oh my gosh, it's so <laughs> hard. <laughs> no, I know, I, I feel bad about having these glib responses, but I, <laughs> I, it's only because I've spent hundreds of hours writing and rewriting and writing and rewriting and trying to, trying to uncover the pattern, the hidden pattern behind, like what, why are all these, why are all these phrases wrong and why are these, and, and the hidden pattern is this, these six plays, uh, which is don't obey the clock, control the clock, don't coerce, but collaborate, don't, con don't comply, but get commitment. Collaboration results in com commitment. Don't continue, but complete. See the work in small chunks, complete. Okay, we're just gonna sail to here, then we're gonna make another decision. Uh, we're just going to run a product for two months, and we're going to make it. You know, we're, we're just going to try the software, for whatever, uh, and then improve, not prove, and connect as humans, not conform to hierarchical role. And this is where I, it's it's square in your wheelhouse, uh, Gary, with your podcast. Connect is about vulnerability, and the, the other concept is called the power gradient. How much more important do people in the hierarchy? So people at level one. How much more important do they feel than people at level two, three, four, whatever? And the rule is that information flows inversely proportional to the steepness of the hierarchy. So in your example of the iceberg of ignorance, 4% of leaders, well, if you can make it less steep, you'd learn, you'd know 5% or 6%. And it's steep. And I can tell from the physical layout of the office, I can make a quick assessment. I look at carpet thickness, office size, physical separation, private parking spots, private executive dining rooms. That's the, anything to do with physical separation. That sends a signal, I'm better than you. I, don't, I can't actually mix with you, the unwashed masses. And so then we say, oh, like I'm hiding behind my, I'm hiding in a closed office in an executive dining room all the time. And then I shrug my, and I'm like, oh, how come I didn't know that the engineers were cheating on the diesel in, engine uh, emissions testing? Well, I, I don't know that that's true, that they didn't know, but that kind of thing. And, you know, how, how come I, I, I didn't know? I mean, scandal after scandal, Wells Fargo doing you know, people creating fake accounts, uh, robo-mortgaging, the v Veterans Administration, um, creating fake waiting lists so they can meet and they could show records that said, hey, we have a two-week waiting time, blah, blah, blah. Go to, uh, here's a good example, is the um, RBS headquarters that they built at Gogoburn. 
outside of Edinburgh. And uh, the, the, uh, the office for the CEO is something like, it's either 100 feet or 100, 100, it can't be 100 meters, maybe it's 100 feet. Anyway, it was this huge office and there were security guards keeping the whole building, you know, the executive wing was highly protected. Even if you'd worked it there for, for a long time, you couldn't get in, physical separation. I mean, this was just before they went bust and they needed the government the taxpayers, let's be clear about that, to bail them out. Anyway, good news is it's now an incubator for startups, this vast space. <laughs> but you just, you just walk around and you can see the trappings of this and then, and then it's, not, it's not confusing why, these, why people ha are out of touch and only know 4% of what's going on. It's, it's so interesting. Yeah. You're, you're not oversimplifying it for me because I, th I think part of the challenge that I see, David, regularly is we do also have an education system that is still churning out that outdated playbook in many instances. Maybe our parents, maybe it's education. So I do also empathise with, to some extent, leaders that are sort of stuck or maybe afraid to sort of step into this new playbook. What's your recommendation or maybe just some ideas how maybe someone that is stuck in the old way what would you recommend them try and do to try and gradually step into this new this new paradigm which of course they need to step into to to survive yeah. to be honest <laughs> so is and that's a whole nother topic is the education system because the education system is an industrial age education system designed remember the plays coerce comply so what we and conform that's what we, I didn't want too much trouble out of you. When I told you what to do, I, I just wanted you to comply. And so the industrial, and, and think about it. When the teacher says, what's 10 plus 12? The answer is 22. It's not, well, you know, it could be this, could be that, da, 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 da. We're not, we, again, we've reduced not, uh, complexity. We try and reduce complexity. What are the three reasons for the War of the Roses? Okay, well, I reduced, I'm, I'm reducing complexity and I'm, I'm eliminating, uh, because it's cognitively convenient, and I'm eliminating these complex, hard, heavy lifting discussions. So that's a whole nother thing. And I, and I am very sympathetic too. Again, our target is not the 0.001% of people who are psychopaths and evil people. Our target is the 99.999% of people who are trying to do the right thing, but they're equipped this is exactly the way I see it. They're equipped, they're, they've got a basically a, uh, a soccer playbook and they're trying to play football or the other way around or cricket and rugby maybe to use a better thing. <laughs> and it's just not working. And we say, oh, you know, well, uh, make a better scrum and we'll do whatever. Yeah, but you're playing cricket. It doesn't work. It's not, not how good of a scrum you make. You're playing cricket and, and people don't know what game they're playing. And so... Uh, so, so to answer your question, number one, these things, you can start super small. Control the clock is the right, I think is the easiest way to start. You want to do two things. You got to make it easy to transition out of doing performance mode into thinking mode, but you also got to make it easy to, 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 to get out of thinking and go back to doing. If you just make it easy to go in one direction, then you're going to end up spending all your time in that direction. But in general, most organizations are bi overly biased towards doing and reducing variability. So what you want to do is be able to say, all right, time out. 
Uh, let's take a look and give your people a, uh, a tool so that they can call timeout. This is the this is what the and on cord does in the Toyota production system. It lets the worker on the production line signal, hey, I got a problem. The supervisor comes over, they shift into thinking mode and they see if they can solve the problem. They can't within the, the time that the part would spend on that person's area, then the line stops. And, and then thirdly, you want to pre-plan or you can pre-plan the next stop. So that's why I love things like Agile in terms of agile software development, which is it basically pre-plans the pause. It says, we're gonna go do a two week period of work. And then after that, we've got on the calendar, we're gonna reflect back on how we're doing. We're gonna take feedback on the product. We're gonna celebrate also what we've accomplished. But we don't need anyone to, we're not just gonna keep working until someone sees a problem and raises their hand. We're pre-planning the next pause. And so these, this idea of controlling the clock, I think is where it starts. And if you do that, all, all, you'll figure out all the other plays on your own, or you can buy my book. But basically it's like, okay, well now that I've controlled the clock, what do I want to do? Well, I need to hear what they think. Therefore I have to, again, change the way I ask questions. Okay, now what? Now we're going to make a commitment back to production work. Okay, great. And then, so we got to think about the work in small chunks now. Okay, so that's complete. And we have to have an eye towards improvement. And it all fits together, at least in my head, it fits together quite brilliantly. <laughs> <laughs> but, but for me, it also does. I really love that you're starting that control the clock parks. I think what I see in my own journey the last five years is definitely a, we need to give ourselves permission to slow down more often. Yeah. I think that's on an organizational level, an individual level, team level, is that we still, as you say, prize busyness over presence. Yeah, that's a great way to say it. And, and I end, as I was writing the book, I was sort of in this production mode for the book. And I was also in the production mode for, for my, running my company. And I was also in production mode for running around the, the planet, giving speech. And I just, it hit me one day. I said, you know, this applies to my life. It applies to me. And I, and I kind of end with this sort of whimsical, um, if the, the education system is designed so that we learn and then we do. We graduate and we're 22 and we just perform for the rest of our lives. And I feel like my life would be improved if I could get out of my self-imposed Look what we're doing all the time. Look how many speeches I gave. Look how much revenue we did. Look how many new partners, blah, 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 blah. And so, well, what, what do I want for the next chapter of my life? I, I, and I, I just, like, I think about, like, say, Bill Gates, he would go on these think weeks and he'd bring a whole pile of books. And so it wasn't like he took two years off and, and sat, you know, cross-legged on the floor. But... So he's injecting small periods of reflection throughout the year. And I think that can happen at that level. It can happen bigger, sabbatical, one year every one year out of seven, maybe. And uh, but that requires a, a different approach to education and a different approach to how we run our lives. And it requires me to, to, to practice that. So. 
I'm trying to figure. I'm trying to figure that out. Wish me luck. Good luck, David. <laughs> well, as, as we look to wrap up our, our fantastic conversation today, I just really love you. You've mentioned the word a few times around separation. I think what your new book speaks to is really back to the you know who and what we are as humans. You know, yeah. there is a product to be made. There are businesses to grow. There's a planet to look after. But what you speak to, I think, so beautifully is our ability to connect and be human together is the USP of our time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm totally, I'm with you on that, 100%. 100%. Any parting words apart from go out and get the book? It is a good book. I can genuinely recommend it. It's been yeah. brilliant reading it. What else, what else would you like to leave our listeners with today? No, I just thank you for listening. Thanks for what you do to help make the world a better place. And in particular, making the world of the people who you work with on it every day in your families, make it better for them so that they can be the best they can be just, just exactly the way they are. Beautiful. What's the best way to reach out to you? What's the best mediums, David? I'm on social media, L David Marquet, Twitter, Instagram, that kind of stuff. Facebook. We have a LinkedIn page. Our program's called Intent Based Leadership. You go to intentbasedleadership.com website or on our LinkedIn page, and uh, just connect, say hi, send us your story. And if you get some sort of, uh, if you do something and you pause your life and you do something interesting, let me know. Let me know. Only if it works out, but <laughs> no, no. Um, but again, thank you. Thanks a lot for your time, David. Take care. Cheers. Hi there, your podcast host, Gary Turner here, just wrapping up this awesome conversation with David Marquet. I'd really love to know what you took away from this conversation. It'd be great if you wouldn't mind sharing on social media or email me at garyturner0 at hotmail.com. That's Gary with two R's. Or maybe you can direct message me on LinkedIn or on Twitter. They're my two main social platforms. Or indeed do something public to David and I. You'll find him at l.davidmarquet on most of his platforms. So, so much um, that I took away. But the first thing I want to start with is... David speaks about the fact that he thinks the idea of vulnerability is super important and it's new. The reason it is new is because now we want the doers to be the deciders. In the industrial age, we divided the organization into two castes of people, white collar and blue collar. You know, if we think about the challenges that we have with um, inclusion and diversity currently, you can see it right there. You know, right throughout the last hundred years, we've been separating people by those that know, inverted commas, and those that don't. It's no wonder that the DNI uh, space finds it so difficult to make it stick. There's so much overthinking um, inherently based in the industrial era. So this also speaks to a couple of the um, six plays that David speaks about as we, as we look to try and be more intentional with our language. He talks about improve, not prove, uh, which is super important. And this part, connect as humans, not conform to hierarchical role. Now, I've got some good friends in Rob Baker and also Rich Cooper. Do follow both of them on social media if you don't already. And they speak a lot about job crafting. And I think this speaks perfectly to that, which is actually if we connect on a human level, if we understand what we're good at, what we don't like, um, how we practice being vulnerable and courageous together, how we practice deep listening, etc. 
Um, uh, that's how we can craft the role. There's a job to be done. That absolutely has to be part of the role. But for me, that's only normally 50% of our humanity um, is actually required to do the job in hand. There's so much more space for us to craft a role that suits our skills and our abilities and our desires as a human. And I think in addition to that point, you've got David speaking there that connect to connect is all about vulnerability. So just want to hold that for a second as well. So, so, so powerful. Um, some practical ideas for you as well, which I think were great that came out of this conversation with it. David says, if you sense there is a couple of people that haven't said much, your job is to get them into the conversation. You're missing out on what they think and what they see. So you may have, may have seen the TED Talk by Susan Cain around introverts. And I think this speaks of this perfectly, that actually just because someone's not saying anything doesn't mean they don't have something to say. So how can we go about ensuring that everyone has that space? And one facilitation method, if you've not come across it, is Time to Think by Nancy Klein. Um, I recently trained as a thinking partner with Jane Ted Grant um, in the UK around this. And this is a beautiful way to ensure that everybody's voice gets heard. And a final wrap up for me, again, something else, uh, something that you can do um, to try and help everybody be better within a team is it's on you to ask the questions and create a structure that makes it easy for those signals to be sent to you. So if something's working, not working, etc., how do you ensure that hierarchy or the perception of power dynamics doesn't stop um, you actually hearing what's working and what isn't? So it's on you to design the structure that allows those signals to, f to flow freely. And for me personally, I've evidences in my work, it, that comes from intentionally designing the work, the work to be done around our people and not in spite of them. It's just that straightforward. And uh, for anyone that follows me, they may know that we're actually at the late stage of a, um, a global leading business school validating the work I did in my organisation between 2015 and 2018. Um, because we have designed a structure that allows those signals to be seen and heard far more easily and quickly than they did in the past. So I really hope this conversation served you. We'd love to hear from you. If you've enjoyed it, please do leave a five-star rating on your preferred podcast app. But we'd just love to hear what you've taken away, what you may challenge, what you end up practising following this discussion. And do circle back and let Dave and I know because it's just great to know that these conversations serve you. And thank you so much for joining us today. You can find me, um, I am Gary, an IP Catalyst on Twitter. You can also find me, Gary Interpersonal Catalyst on LinkedIn. And I would love to hear from you. You can find my email, GaryTurner0, that's Gary with two R's, Turner0 at hotmail.com. Until next time, thank you for joining me on episode 93 with David Marquet.